The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 2 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC2. And this is Secret Church 2, Episode 5. First Timothy. This is the middle-sized tease. First Timothy, written to encourage young Timothy, a young leader in the church as he leads the big city church in Ephesus. This is, this is a book that's written to a guy who's trying to lead a church where most of the people are older than him. It's a great... <laughs> I don't understand why that's funny. <laughs> um, you're saying I need to memorize First Timothy, aren't you? Okay. Uh, in all seriousness, he, he was at a point where at times he was tempted to give up. He's trying to lead the church, and especially in some situations where leaders in the church had done some ungodly things, and he's trying to lead. And he says, don't, 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 look, don't let them look down on you for your youth. You set an example in the way you live, and he's trying to encourage Timothy. And really the, the whole book fluctuates between him writing to Timothy and writing to the church, kind of back and forth. It's written primarily to Timothy, but has a lot to say about, how, about leadership in the church. God does desires for godly leaders to lead his church. That leadership must be godly in the church. You see the key verses there. One key word that you see in this, uh, well, you see the overall structure, guarding the doctrine of the church, guarding the worship, church, worship of the church, preserving what's important in the church. Pay close attention to these key words, charge, charge. There is military language throughout 1 Timothy. And basically it's saying, you've got the gospel, you've got the church, you've got to guard it with all your heart. You've got to make sure you maintain the purity of leadership in the church and maintain the purity of the gospel. Guard it with everything you've got. You put a fort around the bunker and make sure that you guard it. Put yourself in Timothy's shoes as you read this letter. And I think, it'll, I think this is a book that gives us a lot of perspective on leadership in the church. There's obviously there's qualifications that are listed for different offices in the church in 1 Timothy. But it's a book we need to see as a picture of what our leaders in the church are held to. Next is 2 Timothy. Um, Paul writes this letter, likely the last letter he writes, while awaiting his trial and death. Uh, you heard Johnny mention this. This changes how you read 2 Timothy. If, if this is the first time you've realized that that was Paul's setting for writing this book, I want to encourage you to go back tonight, or maybe tomorrow, it might be a little late tonight, uh, and read this book. Um, this, is, this is his final imprisonment. And this is not the house arrest picture we see from before in Rome. He is in a dirty prison where he is a hated criminal. And he is. He is expressing isolation and loneliness like we haven't seen before. And we've, we see Paul. I think, I think Paul is demonstrating how a Christian martyr should face death in 2 Timothy. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy's no longer leading the church at Ephesus. Tychicus has taken over there. Timothy's, travel, Timothy's traveling around and preaching. And Paul writes this letter that we've got to get the tone in it to Timothy as he faces execution. You see the overall structure because what's on his mind is how to lead the church, the successful ministry in the church. And you see this pattern for successful ministry in the church. First of all, a reproducing ministry. Entrust it to faithful men. Entrust it. Paul wants the gospel to continue to be spread through the church. Entrust it to more and more and more. Endure in ministry, studying ministry, and holy ministry. 
Um, feel the weight of Paul's concern for Timothy and the weight of his concern for the church. You look in 1 Timothy and you see him talk about how some have turned aside, some have made shipwrecks, some have turned against, aside after Satan, some have led astray, some have erred. You get to 2 Timothy, he says, all have turned away from me. All forsook me. His, his heart is heavy, very heavy in the book of 2 Timothy. But he says in verse, chapter 4, verse 16, all forsook me, but the Lord Jesus Christ stood by my side. And it's a reminder to us that no matter how lonely we get in our Christianity, Paul knows that we are never alone. Christ is right there with us. It's a very heavy book, um, 2 Timothy. Then you get to Titus, the little T at the end. Leader of the church in Crete who had been led to Christ by Paul. You see that in 2 Corinthians. Fourfold purpose. He's reminding Titus to appoint elders in the church. He's warning, them against, warning him against false teachers in the church. He's instructing him how to lead different types of people in the church. To instruct Titus how to lead different types of people in the church and to encourage him regarding the importance of grace in the church. That is the primary theme is grace. Grace that leads to godliness. How the grace of God and godliness in our lives must go together. Um, that whole grace leads to godliness. You see an emphasis on good works. And some, of, some people might come to Titus and think, well, wait a minute, if the book's about grace, then how can it talk about good works all the time? That is the beauty of grace. We have grace poured out on us, but that doesn't mean works is nowhere in the picture. We have grace poured out on us so that we might live to his glory, so that our works might show the grace that has been shown. Because, don't miss it, God doesn't give us grace and then say, now go do good works. He gives us grace and said, I'm going to give you grace to do every good work. Everything we do is by his grace. Everything we do in the Christian life is by his grace. So grace and works do go together in the scriptures. You get to Philemon. You can probably read this book in a shorter amount of time than we're going to talk about it tonight. But it was written to Philemon, a Christian in Colossae who had come to faith in Christ through Paul. Now listen to this. It's written about Onesimus, about a slave of Philemon who had come to faith in Christ through Paul. What had happened was Onesimus had been a slave of Philemon's. And he had stolen something from a Philemon and he'd escaped and then in the sovereignty of God, God brings Paul and Onesimus together, and Onesimus comes to faith in Christ. And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon saying, I'm sending him back to you with what is rightfully yours, but I want to encourage you to treat him in a way that honors Christ. He's begging for forgiveness on behalf of Onesimus. A very, very interesting book in Philemon. Paul writes to inform Philemon of Onesimus' salvation, ask Philemon to forgive him, and then he's requesting to come visit Philemon. This is a great picture of Christ as our redeemer and our reconciler. The, slavery was a, an accepted institution in the first century. But I want you to see in this book the effect of the gospel on slavery because the gospel destroys slavery because it unites us as neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile. We are in Christ. That's the picture here. And it wasn't until later that slavery was abolished in this whole picture of that culture. But the gospel, if we let it, and it's only the church that has stopped the gospel in the past from destroying slavery. It's the gospel strikes at the heart of slavery. No slave, master, employee, employer, 
No Jew and Gentile in this whole picture. The gospel reconciles it all. The gospel transforms our relationships. So that's the last of Paul's letters that we have. That leads us to the general letters. We're going to need to fly through some of this. Nine letters that were not written by Paul. Put a little asterisk there. Ordered again, basically by length, titled according, instead of who they're written to, they're titled according to the names of their authors. James, Peter, John, Jude, and the author of Hebrews. They're written to more general audiences too. That's why they're called the general letters. That doesn't mean they're just kind of... Uh, this brand out here. They're, they're just written to more general, more broad, even sometimes vague audiences. So we come first to Hebrews. Who wrote Hebrews? Here's the answer. That I will go to my grave saying, I believe with all my heart that only God knows who wrote Hebrews. <laughs> only God knows. Who wrote this book? Did Paul write it? Maybe. Apollos? Maybe. Luke? Maybe. Philip? Mark? Even Priscilla or Aquila? Now you're getting out there, but maybe. It, it could have happened. We don't, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We really don't. And if you think you do, you, you don't. And you, it, nobody knows who wrote the book. Uh, now, you can take your chance and one day be found out to be right, and you can hinge your bets on that, but we really are not sure. It's kind of a vague about the authorship and even who it's written to. It's written most likely to Jewish Christians that were facing persecution. Jewish Christians who were being tempted to come back into Judaism, who were being tempted to forsake Christ. You get the picture. Solid Jews coming to faith in Christ. Now they're meeting in homes in secret. You don't have the temple anymore. You don't have all the elaborate things. And you look around in a, in a home church and you think, are we missing something here? We're supposed to have all these externalities. And what the author of Hebrews, whoever they might be, says is all the externalities pointed to one person, to Christ, and you have him in a house church. You have him wherever you go. You need to see how all of that stuff was intended to point to Christ. This is the most Christological book in the New Testament. Well, for that matter, the whole Bible, uh, the most Christological books, it just gives us a picture of the supremacy of Christ and the picture of Christ, the substance of the Old Testament, uh, the, substance, uh, the shadow of the Old Testament enlightened by the substance of the New Testament in Christ. He is the prophet, to the priest, the king. And he's telling the, author of, the, the, telling the readers of Hebrews, the author is saying, if you abandon Christ, you abandon God. Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. So the message of Hebrews, the primary theme is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And the message of Hebrews revolves around exhortations to make sure to continue to follow Christ, not to drift from Christ, not to drift from the mission of Christ. You see superiority of Christ over and over again. Two key words that point to his supremacy. One is better. It said in all those things that you thought were good in the Old Testament traditions, it's better in Christ. And the second word is perfect. Because the only way Christ can be the substance of the shadows in the Old Testament as if he is perfect. He is our perfect redeemer. He is our perfect priest. He is the perfect one who's able to go into the presence of a holy God and stand on our behalf. When you come to the book of Hebrews, you will see and study the Old Testament all over the place. All over the place is the Old Testament. I've given some examples there, but they are everywhere. Things to remember when you see Paul quoting from the Old Testament. I want, to, I want to just give you some hints as you're studying and seeing the Old Testament, New Testament come alive in Hebrews. Remember that the author is quoting from the Greek Old Testament. And so sometimes the translation may seem a little different in, the, in our, even when you put it into English, it might seem a little different than the exact verse in the Old Testament. 
Doesn't mean that the author just was kind of missing it. They're quoting from the Greek Old Testament, so there's little changes here and there. Not big, not substance changes, but some of the wording. The author argues many times from lesser to the greater. You see that progression of the arguments. And the author views everything in the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. As well should we. Views everything in the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. So that's Hebrews. Next is James. Likely written by James, the brother of of Jesus. Um, James is probably the one who directed the Jerusalem conference way back in Acts chapter 15. And so he's got some strong Jewish roots as well. Um, It was written to address the practical implications of true faith. In other words, what does Christianity look like in action? What good is it, my brothers, if a man has faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Give him, gives him words but does nothing about his physical needs, no action, then what good is it? He said, Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. And so basically what you have in the book of James is almost short moral essays of how this faith looks in action. You see the overall structure. They are Old Testament everywhere. In 108 verses, references or allusions to 22 Old Testament books. It's not that long of a book here in the New Testament, but 22 Old Testament books referenced there, and at least 15 references or allusions to the teaching of Christ. You might even put a little note. Sermon on the Mount especially, there are some strong parallels between the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount. Notice the emphasis on social justice. Religion that God our Father looks, as, looks at as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. That's true religion. There's a strong emphasis on social justice. There is definitely a word there for us today. Compare this book with Romans and you get really confused because Romans is all about justification by faith, not by your works. And then James seems to be saying the complete opposite. It's what Luther, you know, we talked about how Luther was big on Romans in the, in the Protestant Reformation. <laughs> he, he, he said, one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther, he got so sick and tired of Catholicism in his day, constantly talking about how we're justified by our works and putting James up over and over again. He said, one of my favorite quotes, Luther said, some days I just want to throw Jimmy in the stove. Martin Luther desiring to throw Jimmy in the stove. (laughs) Paul addresses our... Here's how I picture these two books. I hope it helps. Paul addresses our standing before God. I believe James is primarily addressing our witness before the world. Whenever we read any part of Scripture, we need to read it in the context of all of Scripture, the whole of Scripture. And so, when you come to James, don't throw out everything we've seen in the New Testament up to this point about salvation and justification by faith. Put it together and say, we need to show the world the way Christianity looks with the way we live. That is where our faith will be put into action. That's what is being emphasized here. You get to 1 Peter. 1 Peter writes in a context of, is written in a context of persecution, very bad persecution. Nero was the new Roman emperor. And basically what what happened is, this is a guy who is an evil ruler. At one point, most likely it was him who set Rome ablaze, and then he blamed it on the Christians. And as a result, Christians were being tortured in public all over the place. They were being burned alive. There are stories of Nero taking brothers and sisters who have gone before us and lighting them up on crosses in order to provide light in his gardens by burning them alive. And that was happening in Rome. And it was sure to spread out. And so 
Peter writes this book to encourage the believers amidst the suffering and persecution they're about to go through. And you see suffering all over the pages of this book. It's written to the church in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that's facing increasing suffering and persecution. I want to put modern-day Turkey in there because I'll just take a side note here. This is an article that was published in the Associated Press this last week. Slain German highlights Christian plight. And it's a story from Turkey. Same place that's associated with 1 Peter. But 2,000 years later this last week, the story of a quiet and deeply religious German missionary ended with the sound of dirt being scattered over his coffin in eastern Turkey, his violent death, a sign of the plight of Christians in this Muslim country. The article goes on to talk about how, how few, there were, there's only about 20 Christians in this particular community, how Turkey is 99.9% Muslim, basically. And this man, a German missionary, and two Turkish Christians were killed last week, their hands and feet bound and their throats slit at a Christian publishing house that distributes Bibles. Five young men were detained and charged with murder. They allegedly said they killed to protect Islam. He goes on to have some quotes from from this man's wife, the three kids that are left behind, 13, 10, and 8 years old. And the wife is saying throughout this article that she plans to stay there. They said, are you going to leave Turkey now? She said, no, this is where God has called us, and we're going to proclaim the gospel in Turkey. I have a German brother and two Turkish brothers. talks about one of the Turkish Christians whose family came to get his, his body, but his family is Muslim, and they refused that he would be allowed a Christian burial. And so when they got there, they found the wife of the Turkish Christian who's also a Turkish Christian, and she said, you cannot have this body. He will have a Christian burial. This is a real thing. This is not just a thing we do tonight. It's real this week in places that we're studying about tonight. So what does Peter write to people in that setting? The major theme is the sufficiency of God's grace, which is used in every single chapter. The grace of God is emphasized. You see the key verses there. The overall structure, there's a call to holy living in here in the middle of a very difficult world to live out your Christianity. And there's some pretty strong comparison with Ephesians here. You see some of the parallels there. You see the key words, suffering, 16 different times it's mentioned. Even when Paul talks about Christ, he doesn't talk about how Christ died for us. He talks about how Christ suffered for us. He's showing the identification of Christ with his church. This book that teaches us to learn how to live out the Christian life in the middle of suffering and persecution. I want to remind you that there are people around the world that read the Bible a lot differently than we do. And our brothers and sisters around the world underline different things than we do in the Bible. This is a book that we need to get in the 
into the shoes of those who were hearing it in order to understand the gravity of God's grace in the middle of suffering. And to see suffering, while we don't face persecution in our country like we hear about tonight and we hear about in Turkey, the whole picture of First Peter is to see suffering as a part of a much grander picture. A grander picture that includes the suffering of Christ for the salvation of the world and a grander picture of a God who even in our suffering is using that. He's using that to make his glory known, the glory of his grace known. That's the message of First Peter. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.